a lot of English teachers use those as crutches. And they need to really start focusing on the work and bring out the meaning from the text itself as much as they can. And again, using those other things to help you do that, but not replace it with those things. Welcome to Classical Etc. You're in the studio with Shane Saxon. Welcome to another episode of Classical Etc. Today's episode, we're going to discuss an article in the most recent edition of the Spring 2023 Classical Teacher, an article written by Martin Cothran. How to think about literature. This is an article that appears next to articles by <laughs> luminaries such as Wendell Berry, <laughs> Tracy Lee Simmons, Joseph Pierce. I'm thinking they're going to be talking about Wendell Berry's article appearing alongside of luminaries like me. Uh, it's possible oh. that someone would say that. <laughs> okay. This has gone downhill really fast. But before we get to this article, I want to ask you guys, Martin, what have you been reading recently? <laughs> I am reading... Um, Yaroslav Pelikan's Christianity and Classical Culture, which is a book about how, um, at least in the beginning part, he's talking about the Eastern Church Fathers. It's like Gregory of Nyssa. Uh, Basil, uh, Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory Nazianzen, um, and how they dealt with paganism, pagan thought. Mm -hmm. It's a really interesting study. Um, and uh, just just how that relationship worked itself out they were they were trying to to deal with pagan thought and trying to take the truths from it um and and reject those things that were that were not so good of course you know augustine is doing that in the west but this is the story at least at the beginning of this book of how it how it uh, uh, that all goes down in the east what uh, made you want to read this particular book well i'm you know i have a my my uh online course uh, at Memorial College during the summer, the introduction to, uh, to, to uh, classical education, mm. philosophy of classical education. And I try to read one kind of major book every year that's different from what I've re read before, kind of to add into what I, what I talk about in the class. So we, we do talk about the whole issue of paganism and Christianity, uh, faith and reason, some of those issues. At the do you beginning. relate this book to kind of a central classical education inside of the ways that classical truth kind of gird and under uh, and support Christian truth in, in education. Right. Right. Your turn. You know, actually I've read, I've been reading some fiction. I actually read fiction. Yeah. But you might be disappointed in me as you're always, you're all, you're all always disappointed <laughs> in me. So <laughs> no, we're, we're happy with the things you read, except for possibly motorcycle maintenance. Well, you're about to be disappointed again. So I just completed uh, passenger by Cormac McCarthy. I've um, never read him. Yeah. Did you like it? I, I really like him. I think you would hate him. Do you think I would hate I, him? I do. Mm. I was um, say I've always the same thought thing. I should read yeah. him. I think he's an well, incredible you author. Um, I've read a good amount of his stuff. Um, why do I? Why do you think I wouldn't like him? He's very him? dark. Mm. Very. There's a lot of violence. Right. Um, and, and I think a lot of it is, I mean, it's very much just, he is, I mean, we're going to talk about Flannery O'Connor. Um, there's a similar thing that he's doing. I mean, his exploration of human nature is, I think, to show that the, the opposite is is possible. That there is a world with that is possible without violence. That there are there are vices and virtues, but he explores the vices. Yeah. What wow. About, what about you, Tanya? Um, well, I'm still reading a tree grows in Brooklyn, okay. and um, and I'm reading a book about um, it's an autobiography. Um, of a man that grew up in South Africa and it is 
very dark now, but there's hope. I know there's hope because he was able to write the, the autobiography. Tony, introduce our short story. Oh, so next time we meet, we're going to do a Flannery O'Connor short story, The Lame Shall Enter First. So we wanted to tell everybody so that they could read it ahead of time if they would like, or they can listen to the discussion. And then I'm sure after our riveting discussion, everyone will want to run out and read it. So did you say it's available online? It is available online. It It is, yeah. Okay, Okay, so anybody can find it. The Lame Shall Enter First. But really everybody ought to have this book, which is her complete short stories. Yeah. Uh, Does that include the novels as well? No, it doesn't. I've got got one of the, how many novels were there? Like two. two? Wise Blood and... Uh, the Violent Bear Away. The Violent Bear Away. I've got at least one of those, okay. but n- neither of those is All in right. here. Okay. Paul, what about you? What have you been reading? I've, I have been um, uniquely focused still on East of Eden. Oh, yeah. oh, I bought it, or I didn't buy it. Nick got it for me for Mother's oh, Day. So yeah, that's going to be the answer it. to this question for several uh, yeah, episodes yeah, because we, it is no, a beautiful. No, no, he's no, speeding well, through it because he loves here's it. Here's the thing. Yeah, I love it, but I keep like... The way the story's going, I, I keep thinking, well, like this, the book has to end with like these characters, like whatever, wherever these characters end up, like that's going to be the end of the story. But then like it's, it, he's following generations. And so mm-hmm. you, I'm like, oh, now we're on to another, like, and you're seeing sort of the sins be passed down. And I mean, mm-hmm. it's very interesting but I keep thinking I'm almost to the end, and then I'm like, wait, I'm on to a new character. And then I go, look, I got, oh, I got 10 more hours to go. You know, I'm listening to it. But I am, I think I'm three quarters of the way through at this point. Is um, this a book on poverty like Grapes of Wrath or totally different? Uh, no, I would say it has more to do with relationships. Hmm. Yeah. I, yeah, I'm excited about it when I can get to it. Because I think, I think the back of the book says that it was Steinbeck's retelling of Cain and Abel. Mm. Oh, yeah. that's fun. It's kind of an Are you imitation that? of I the am, Cain and Abel story. Oh, here he comes. Here comes What'd the you segue. Say? An imitation of what? Kind of an imitation of the Cain and Abel story. Uh, yeah. Of the but, violent inherent between brothers. <laughs> Let me just say, before you move on, that I was expecting sort of a straight up allegory, more like C.S. Lewis, mm. where it's clear. Right. It's more, I would say it's more like Tolkien, where you're seeing glimmers of it, in, in multiple characters through the whole story. Okay. Mm-hmm. Which is, I think, the more the better literary way to do it. Okay, I Shane. Would Perhaps the more mimetic way to do it. <laughs> you know, you keep <laughs> dropping these words that, that come from this great article. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So the article we're going to discuss is how to think about literature. And if you don't have a copy of our catalog, you can get one by going to memoriapress.com and, and going to the tab that says catalog. Or you can just pull this article up online mm-hmm. if you want to read it. Now, Martin, you wrote this article, I think, because you were reflecting on this book by M.H. Abrams, The Mirror and the Lamp. Tell, tell us a little bit about that book and what it got you thinking and why you took this uh, path with this article. Well, uh, that's really one of, you know, literary criticism can be a hard, literary criticism can be hard to read. There's mm-hmm. a lot of it out there that's, uh, and um and it's hard to find a book that really, really hones in on the essentials and that gives you an overview like Abrams' book does. Um, in, in Lewis Marcos's Great Courses lecture series, From Plato to Postmodernism, which I highly recommend, it is, it is a wonderful uh, set of lectures. 
he starts out with Abrams and starts out with this breakdown of the um, of the four different perspectives you can take on literature. Yeah, so you talk about four different perspectives on viewing literature. I'm guessing because I see your notes that they come from the four causes, but you don't mention the four causes in the article itself. What are these four ways that literature can be, or yeah, that literature can be looked at from, or what are the four, what is, what is it, the ways that they can be analyzed? Yeah, well, um, actually in Abrams' book, he has a little map of the the four sort of modes of, of literature and the first is the the universe of art, uh, the the thing the work is about. Okay, um, and uh, it, for example, and I use in this article, and and uh, Tanya gave me a hard time about it because it's not a work of literature. But I want I I really needed to use a piece of concrete art to to explain this best. The Mona Lisa, the painting, because this really what he's doing is he's really taking a a, a critique of all art and just applying it to literatures, which right. is why I can, why, why I can use the Mona Lisa here. Um, so the, the first thing, um, the, the, the first emphasis of art is what is it that you're trying to portray? Um, and, and he says the thing you're trying to this first, first perspective is the universe of art, the thing that it's about. So if we're talking about the painting of the Mona Lisa, we're talking about Mona Lisa herself. She's sitting there in the chair. That's what he's trying to paint. The second is the audience for the work. And I'll just go through them quickly. Third, there's the artist himself. So in the, in the case of Mona Lisa, that's Leonardo da Vinci. And finally, there's the work itself, which is da Vinci's actual painting of the Mona Lisa. So those are the four, and you can do them whatever order you like, um, but uh, those, are the, those are the four aspects of art that you are focusing on. And, and in, I guess it was the older article, I did talk about how uh, you can take Aristotle's four causes, which are so useful with just about everything. And, and you can, when you're talking about the universe of art, you're talking about the formal cause. What is the pattern of this thing? There's the final cause. What is it for? Uh, the audience, the aesthetic pleasure of the audience, the efficient cause, which is what produced the thing, which is of course Da Vinci in this case, and the material cause, what does it consist of, which is the actual, you know, painting itself. So I've, you just take the, uh, Abrams takes those, those four things in the first chapter of his book, The Mirror and the Lamp, and he analyzes literature that way. And I've always found that to be the most uh, compelling way of looking at literature. Paul, Martin is using uh, the word universe here mm -hmm. kind of in a technical way. And he says that, one of the aspects of the art is the universe of the art. I feel like that of the four terms is maybe the hardest one to understand, or it's maybe using the word in a different way than we normally would. What does is, what is Martin mean by... Try to get inside uh, Martin's I, head here. Oh my. I can't tell, tell you what Martin's sitting here I can tell him. you how I took it when I read the article, <laughs> yeah. which was just reality, right? So, so if a work of literature is... It, when, we're, when we're talking about sort of the the form that or the pattern that it's representing ought to be imitative in some way of reality. That doesn't mean that science fiction isn't literature that, I mean, science fiction is I think imitating our universe within certain bounds. Right. And so you're seeing, you're seeing a, a representation of reality set in, in a, in a similar but different world. Right but that it is it's reflective of true things 
I think. I don't know. Am I completely off base on what well, was in your head? I, I was just thinking that science fiction is an interesting uh, thing to choose to talk about um, the, the imitative view of art. And, that, and that's really what we're talking about here when we're talking about that aspect of it is, is that we are imitating something in the world, some truth in the world. Science fiction isn't really imitating the world. It's really derivative from our experiences of this world. You know, the writers who write it have never seen the world that they're talking about. They're taking the things of this world and kind of rearranging them right. in some and that, futuristic and it, world. It's still imitative in it, some it is, way. It is. Um, what I was thinking of Ender's Game, mm-hmm. right, where, I mean, the idea of a kid playing video games, right, I mean, that's consistent with this world, mm-hmm. but it's just been given a... a uh, a whole different use mm-hmm. in that world. Yeah, I mean, one way to look at it is just that you are trying to speak a truth which you know about things in this world. And so in that sense, it is it is imitative. No, no author can actually make up really new things. Right. All they can do is operate from their own experience. And they take those experiences and they rearrange them in a way to tell some truth about the world. So really, in a, in a way... That, that first aspect of things, the universe of art, is really the truths of the world, mm-hmm. trying to, to tell some truth. And I think, you know, I'm not a fan of science fiction either. I've made it clear that I'm not a fan of fantasy. I'm not a fan of science, of science fiction for the same reasons. I just don't like living in this some kind of alternative re- universe. But I do recognize that orcs represent evil, which is real in this world. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to let you say that fantasy and science fiction are indeed literature. Mm-hmm. Well, no, and I'm, I'm very, I, I'm, I think you ought to I thank her for that permission. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. Uh, well, I didn't bring the science fiction thing up. He did. I know uh, he did. But, but, and uh, I was thinking, oh, I, maybe it's not literature. I felt, no, I felt like science fiction had to be brought up because if we're going to talk about imitation. That's like the one thing that's out there kind of screaming at Science us going, fiction or fantasy or basically, mm-hmm. you know, or mythology for, for that mm-hmm. matter. That's what Plato was talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you move from these four aspects of the art to different views of art or views of literature. And you start with the pragmatic view and you kind of throw Which one is of my out heroes of under the bus. And it's <laughs> I a do, bit who, out of, who do I throw under the bus? Philip Sidney. Okay. I mean, you're not highly critical of, of <laughs> so any of these problem. first three views, right? But you you do want to say that these various at, uh, views are not complete pictures, right? Am I reading you correctly there? No, I don't, I don't think this is throwing him under the bus. I think, I mean, to say that the purpose of literature is to teach and delight the audience, I do think that is that is valid. I, th- that, I think Shakespeare wrote to teach and delight an audience. I don't think, are you being really critical of that? Uh, not really. Um, I, I'm I, of all the people here that, that Tanya should come to my defense. I know. I um, think, I think you're just being very sensitive. No, 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 no. no. I think, I think Shane's point is, is valid that it's, it's not, it's not a, a bad thing to want to delight the audience, but that if that is the sole lens through which we judge literature, then it is only a partial picture. Well, okay. I think so all of these are a partial picture. Well, they they are, and I say that at the end, in fact. Uh, but I, I think that this is this is the one that dominates the art market, the movie mm-hmm. market. Uh, you know, the reason yes. we have these big spectacular, you know, in in, in in when I was young, it was it was you know 
movies with chase scenes with cars and you know and now we have all these special effects and so we have these big spectacular mm. uh special effects things i saw the the newest uh avatar which i i loved because it had so much more than just the spectacle to it uh but the spectacle was pretty spectacular uh and i i think that uh this is if if you want to think about this one this pragmatic view of art the the idea of pleasing the audience then you can think about these about the, these movies with special effects, these well, these. and uh, sometimes do you read a book and you think this book reads like a screenplay? Mm-hmm. I hate those yeah, books. Oh, yeah, hundred percent. It's like they are being written for a screen instead of for as a piece of literature. Can I defend my guy, Philip Sydney? Okay, you go, Defending. go right ahead. I think that what he is saying, in at least a defense of poetry, is that the purpose of delight is to teach those universal truths. I think that he, his whole argument is that if you look at history, it gives you an inconclusive view about what's right because sometimes bad people do things and then they win. Mm. And then he says with philosophy, you can kind of abstractly say, well, I can deduce that this is correct. But with literature, it's the one place where you can compel people to the good. Mm -hmm. Right. And I don't know. I don't know. I can't remember enough of Sydney to know where he stands on these other aspects of art. Uh, I'm not saying any of these, like the pragmatic view is bad. The expressive, it's if you take those things in isolation, right? Whereas the imitative idea, um, it does is the thing that is central, and, and that it, all these and it others, covers all, yeah, and this. all these others work into that. So if you were going to pick one to be your central principle, this would not be the one. Just pleasing the audience is not the main. It's thing not about enough, right. right? Right. But but I do love that point though that that we want to use the delight of the audience to teach them something good or true. Which technically Martin does say, he says the purpose of literature is to teach and delight the audience. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, I'm defending you again, but I think that, man, it must be this rainy day. (laughs) I think that goes back to why we don't like the ones that are purely that, that those books that that feel like like a screenplay. Because they're not actually trying to teach, they're only trying to delight. That's right. And it's not enough. And that that is one of the weaknesses of a lot of modern film and music, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so I looked up, just out of curiosity, some of the, like, for, so here you're talking about the 16th century was the pragmatic view. So the most, the, the things that I came up with were, of course, Shakespeare, but mm-hmm. also Spencer's Fairy Queen, mm-hmm. which I think you are also a fan of. Uh, I I have not really delved oh, into Fairy Queen very is much. Is one of you all the big fan of the Fairy mm-hmm. Queen? I, I'm a big fan of Paradise Lost. Yeah, maybe, well, that but, one. So that. Yeah. So let's move on. Um, look at you segueing again. So the expressive view, which is next in the its, chronological order. Yes, that's right. But fourth in oh, who knows? Anyway, <laughs> um, so that is Paradise. So that the expressive view literature is primarily the expression of the feelings of the writer. So mm. it's all about the writer. So that is John Donne, Paradise Lost, the the King James Bible, Don Quixote. Those are the books that pop up if you if you Google um, 17th century, which is based, 17th, 18th centuries here. Mm-hmm. So, but I don't think that's really, I mean, certainly not the Bible. Well, can I say one thing about you? You brought up Shakespeare several times. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Shakespeare actually is operating on different levels. I think they all are. Well, well they, yeah, right. They all are. Um, because you do have, 
he has to have the spectacle at the Globe Theater because there's people who will not understand the sophisticated aspects of his plays. So they have to be entertained. And, you know, there's that, you know, uh, uh, I've heard people talk about, you know, the groundlings that there were, there were three levels of the Globe Theater and the, the, it's the people in the, in the pit uh, right. who need to be entertained. And yet the people at the top need to have something that's going to appeal to their which aesthetic is, sense. Which is why he is still being published is, today exactly and is considered right. the exactly greatest right. because he was able to appeal to all of that. Right. Right. Which is, I mean, that in itself. Right. But I, I did mention, you know, Wordsworth and, and Keats and Shelley in here, you know, the romantic mm-hmm. movement of the late 19th century, uh, which was a which was a current in culture more broadly from, you know, philosophy, you know, Rousseau in France and and which which is a little bit more in a way, if you could say I'm, I, I don't really mean this that negatively, but sort of self-centered in terms of the artist that I'm just expressing these feelings. You need to read Wordsworth. And it's like, he's trying to give you this picture of how things were when he was a child and he was, and it's, that's hard to do, Mm. you know? Um, Yes. You can see this expressive view. I think really well with the romantic poets. Right. 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 And, and in a lot of music, I think too, you see a lot of that. Oh, Yes. I think you so. know, the, the, you know, really sad love song or something that, whereas, you know, that's a, it just really appeals to, and if and there's some great songwriters who and have music, not only the words of the song but the music to strengthen what they're trying to say, right. and that's pretty powerful. So we move from the expressive view to the objective view. Tony, who are some of the authors? It seemed like you were going to... I was, because I was just curious. Yeah. <clears throat> so, T.S. Eliot, C.S. Lewis, mm-hmm. James Joyce, Fitzgerald, Virginia Woolf, George Orwell. Mm. Um, I don't know. I mean, I was just looking up authors. I don't know. But but what I, the conclusion that I came to, so the objective view is the value lies in the work itself with nothing extraneous. It doesn't matter what the author thought. It doesn't matter what the reader thinks. It's the actual work itself. Mm-hmm. And right. so I, the, what the conclusion I came to was that I think all of these authors who are still being published today have some of all of this. And now I don't know if there is an author who, I mean, I know this is, we've had this discussion in our office before, that the work itself can stand alone without any kind of history of the author, without any knowing where the author is coming from. I mean, that is a, that is a yeah, viewpoint and, and this, this that was some a, people in our office have. Right. Is that the work can stand alone. And this was a reaction against this romanticism mm-hmm. and this, this other stuff. The, these, these, the, the new, what were called the new critics. Uh, this, you're talking 1920s, 30s, 40s. These were, these were guys, I, I mentioned some of them in here. Robert Penn Warren, who's a Ken, Kentucky writer. Cleanth uh, Brooks, some of these people. Um, these were, there were people at, they were Southern writers. They were people at LSU, um, at Vanderbilt, uh, at, at places like this was where this, this movement was centered. And it, with some, some was, was resonating with people like T.S. T. S. Eliot, uh, where 
they were trying to say, look, you can talk about the, your feelings all you want. You can talk about uh, all this other stuff, but the, 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 the issue is the work itself. And they went, you know, there's, there's extremes in each one of these right. and they went to a, 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 another extreme. Um, and so there's a book called um, The Verbal Icon uh, by W.K. Wimsatt, who was one of the great new critics. And I like that expression. That's what they viewed a, an artistic work as a verbal icon. It spoke, but it spoke out of itself. And, um, and he, at the beginning of that book, there's two very useful essays, no matter what your view is, um, called The Intentional Fallacy and The Affective Fallacy. And they're, they're basically saying, look, uh, a, 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 a piece of literature is not just what the author meant it to be. There's things that authors do that go beyond what they meant. Um, it's not just it's not just what was in the author's mind. It's something that goes a, a good work of art goes beyond that, and and it's not just how it makes you feel. These are the two extremes, right. and they were right. pushing against those, and I think rightly so. Uh, and so they come. So all the 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 new critics dominated the teaching of English in America up until really fairly recently. And there's some people who still say, look, the only way you can really teach literature is, is using the new criticism. That's really the only mm -hmm. way you can, you can teach literature well. So there were all these manuals and books. I have a bunch of them on my shelves by, by people uh, like uh, Warren Brooks and Warren. They, they, they co-authored all these great in English instructional books oh. and they were following this, this methodology. <clears throat> This view is really popular for people who sat in like uh, liter masters of li literature programs or, you know, seminary classes where author, where the teacher was teaching that the work of literature's value is in what it uncovers about the past or, or history. You know, it's like the value of Shakespeare's writing is what it tells us about Shakespeare's England. And so, you know, the objective view comes back to that and says, no, the value of Shakespeare is, is are these plays, Shakespeare. you know, and, <laughs> and I see the value of that. But then also I think, like you said, these are extremes. Mm -hmm. The, the kind of naivety that sometimes comes from the objective view is this kind of radical separation of the object itself from history. And it's like, these words have a particular meaning because of their culture and milieu that they rose out of. And if you want to know what this word means, the best way to do that is to look at how it was used in other places. But, and, but this is a danger in teaching literature, I think, in a lot of schools is, the, you know, the, the, the teacher may not know the work very well. So they go and they read about it and they can, you know, tell the students about it. And everything. But, but to take a, a poem or a piece of literature and to sit there with it and read it together. And live in it. And mm -hmm. live in it mm -hmm. and, and really get the meaning out of it. You kind of have to go the new critical direction. On that it, I, I is think. contemplation. Uh, yeah, the, you have to contemplate the work, mm -hmm. and and yeah, the history may help to do that. But the it's author's not feelings may to help it. to do that. But don't. But uh, the, the but you the, can also contemplate the work without those things, right? You you, you don't. People, a lot of English teachers use those as crutches, and they need to really start focusing on the work and bring out the meaning from the text itself mm -hmm. as much as they can. And again using those other things to help you do that, but not replace right. it with those things. But if it doesn't, <clears throat> sorry, if it doesn't appeal to an audience, 
nobody's going right. to read. It's That's got. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, that has to be a part of it too. It the, all of these things have to be, I think, a part of reading literature. I don't think it's one or the other. Well, and I wanted to make a point about like the different books, book titles you mentioned that were being published at the time that these critical views were more popular. I think they they are still being published because they went beyond that their current right. critical uh, the what the current criticism was was you know it, for for Don Quixote to be published in in the time where the expressive view is just going gangbusters well there's a whole lot more to Don Quixote than just the way it makes you feel mm-hmm. you know and that's why Don Quixote is still published we move from these three somewhat incomplete views to a view that you would say is maybe the classical view, and that is the mimetic view. Martin, will you kind of summarize what the mimetic view is? Well, this, what's mimetic mean? It means well, that's where we get our word imitate. Oh, okay. That's that's the root. Um, uh, it, I, I, you know, I said here that art is <clears throat> fundamentally the imitation of either the divine essences, if you want to take Plato's doctrine of the forms, you know, uh, that that the the essence of anything here, a tree or a, or a, even a human being is in some heavenly realm and that we're trying to get there. Of, yeah. Imitate that. So in some what's way. the form? I keep hearing Plato's forms. <laughs> we can do another show on that. Can we? I'm, well, I'm sorry. It's going to be a long <laughs> digression. point out that the last <laughs> yeah. podcast was on virtue and we were going to go practical and Tanya asked, what is virtue? And here we are talking about literature and she says, what is the forms? <laughs> I mean, Tanya has this thirst this is, for philosophy yeah, that is just right. unabated. It's just every I'm time. scared of what she'll do with it if she gets a hold of it. <laughs> uh, that, or, or, the, the Platonic, or of things themselves because Aristotle takes Plato's view of, of the essences and says they're not in some heavenly realm. They're in the things in this world. So th- those are the two kind of polar views of this in a way. Uh, and so, so it could be um, that it's some, some imitation of things themselves. This is the original view. This is the view in Aristotle's work, the Poetics, which is the really the greatest one of the greatest works of literary criticism. And as uh, Lewis Marcos points out in his lecture series, that all of these views sort of circled around Plato's. That they also sort of uh, took for granted Aristotle's Poetics all the way up until uh, the middle of the 20th century. And then it starts being abandoned by, you know, the last view I talk about here, the kind of the fifth view. Um, and so, uh, <clears throat> so the purpose of the art is to aesthetically represent what is. To aesthetically, artistically um, represent reality, to imitate it in some way. That's, that's basically Aristotle's great insight and, and that's the one that uh, that a I don't know, traditionalist would say is the central view, <clears throat> not denying the others, but simply kind of putting them in their place. So then you follow that up um, with the straw man, the postmodern view mm-hmm. that you quickly knock over. <laughs> Why um, do you use the postmodern view as kind of an antithesis for the mimetic view? Well, because this is what's taken over. I mean, this is what uh, this is what has succeeded the objective view, the the view of the new critics. Um, that we we start we start basically 
uh, questioning basic things, you know, the difference between objectivity and subjectivity. Uh, you get into to thinkers like Jacques Derrida, you know, the structuralists, the post-structuralists, things, the wheels just start falling off. And this is, this is not just in literary criticism. This is in philosophy. This is in linguistics. This is in all these things uh, where they're, they're questioning that there are, Derrida, whether there are dichotomies at all, whether I can make distinctions like I just make in this article, uh, <clears throat> that, that there is no inherent order to the universe. That's why, and, and this is what dominates all of our discourse now, um, and, and it's, it's why we, you know, I mean, it's, it's all over our politics that there are, you know, hierarchies. You know, you hear this term used very pejoratively now, uh, that we're working against hierarchies. All hierarchies? Are there no real hierarchies in nature? And, and uh, so, so that view is, is taken and it's applied to literature uh, so that now, the, the, since there is no reality, there's not even the reality of the text and the author. I mean, Roland Barthes uh, as a whole thing, uh, which they've called the death of the author, that we can forget who the author was of this book. Mm-hmm. We can just, and we can insert ourselves in the book. We can read our own ideas into the text that we're reading and pretend that that's what it really means, Think even what, though there is how, no real meaning. What a nightmare in a classroom <clears throat> To oh, teach absolutely. in this way, oh, if there's no truth, right. every student, then by the time every student gives his own thoughts about what it is, nobody's learned anything. Mm-hmm. There's nothing been taught. Right. Well, when, you, when you've when you denied the the um, the reality of truth, then it's hard right. to teach it. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, what right. are you teaching? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and so this is, I mean, this, you know, you go to a, a modern university today and, and there's a lot of this kind of thing, uh, you know. The, the criticism I hear from, you know, I, I was in college in the 80s and I wasn't in the literature department. I was in the philosophy department where we didn't put up with nonsense like this. <laughs> but um, but the, oh, the tendency is to want to tear everything apart, mm-hmm. is to analyze it into non-existence. And so, you know, you, you, you go into a literature department and it's a criticism. It's, 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 it's not really meditating on the work. It's trying to tear it apart in some way, and we, they've been given all these tools by Derrida and Bart and Foucault and all these postmodern thinkers to do this. And you, you, I don't know how you don't come out of these programs as an utter nihilist. And I think that's, in fact, what does happen, or just extremely confused, which I think most students just come out of that. This is hard. To, this stuff is hard to understand, partly because it's confused in its, in its essence, but it's also just confusing. And so... Uh, Louis Marcos talks about how he he wanted to do a PhD on uh, just talking about Wordsworth's poetry. And he said, my dissertation professor said, well, we just don't do that. (laughs) They don't, in a, in a, in an English department, we don't talk about what the, the meaning of texts, so we, we we want to talk about all these extraneous things, all these things in these other categories, mm. and it's really it's really tragic, and so it's 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 hard to find good programs in literature anymore because postmodernism has taken over. Paul, how do you think postmodernism kind of rises to the surface in a practical setting of like a school, high school literature classroom, homeschooling? What are the ways that this view of literature maybe takes hold that people don't realize? I, I mean, if you, 
and in some form of literature class are just trying to discuss the the ideas in the work well let me let me back up i would say first of all it's it's so innate to our culture at this point that the students naturally do it right so we we work for years to train our students to go back to what does the text say what does the text say what does the text say and i've sat in classes before where they they'll be whether it's literature or whether it's like nonfiction where it's, you know, I, I was sat in one sociology class that I'll never forget where they were, you know, the teacher wanted them to apply theories to what they see in their, in their actual life. Like is what you see in reality in harmony with this theory or not. And all the students could do was just spout opinions. None of it had any root in the the text in 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 what was being said in the book that they were supposed to have read or in reality it was just this is what i feel and i mean it was i i i just remember walking out of there going what just happened because you couldn't actually there was no train of thought to follow in the whole class because it was every student could come up with something completely different and the teacher wouldn't go back and say well hold on mm. Let's talk about this. It was, it, I mean, it's a train wreck. And a well, waste of time. Yeah, and it's gotten so bad that, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, this was several years ago where the there was some art contest in England and they were they took submissions of art, artistic works and the winner was this painting and it turned out it was painted by like a seven-year-old <laughs> because there are no standards anymore right. by which you, reasonable standards, <clears throat> by which you can judge these things. Right. And... And, and just the very idea of a standard, right, is is totally contrary to the postmodern ideal, right? Mm -hmm. And so, I, I mean, I remember when when uh, my wife and I were, were getting ready, we were going to have foster kids come in the house, and people were giving us stuff, and people were giving us kids' books. And Sarah looks at me, and she goes, are you going to want to evaluate all of these? I said, yes. Yes, I am. Because there is a standard by which, we, you know, whether we want this book in our house or not. And so I sat there and went through the books and she kind of chuckled. But this is, you know. <laughs> but you do have to do that. You do. And, and, and <clears throat> there's been and there's been attempts by people in the art establishment to poke fun at this. And one of them was uh, Marcel Duchamp, who, who takes a toilet. Because you, you hear the, <laughs> like, the, <clears throat> they'll put, there was a, recently I saw there, there was a, a painting of, of, it wasn't a painting. It was just this space and there was a banana nailed to the wall. That was the, that was the art exhibit. Over here at the Speed Museum at the University of Louisville, there was a story that ran and they, it, was, it was this guy who, who would feed these pigment to flies and they would barf it onto the stage and it was just a product of this <laughs> and, and so, I actually I was doing public policy at the time and I, I wrote this I wrote this uh, this press release on the fly barf art that the Speed Museum <laughs> oh and I, I, I said I, I basically just claimed that they had been scammed I knew they had. I knew they were really integral. They've been scammed. Speed Museum's been scammed this by this artist. This means that I could be an artist. <laughs> yes. Yes, you could. I could be an artist. Uh -huh. And I don't think I have an yeah. artistic muse. And the banana, Somebody, some guy came into the exhibit and he just grabbed the banana off the wall and ate it. And <laughs> I am totally for that guy. I, I'm on his side. 
because wow. it's just become it's become absurd and it's it's started to lampoon itself to satirize it. Well, and it's sad that you know because we've gotten away that, from like the my imitator. favorite painter Van Gogh has to stand alongside somebody nailing a banana to a wall. <laughs> um, it's just awful. Yeah, it's 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 and uh, that we would take that seriously. Yeah, and that's mm-hmm. that's where we and, are and pay. Millions, millions, of, millions of, right. of dollars. For it these used things. to be like it, that would have been a Saturday Night Live skit, and now it's real. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so as we think about recovering a classical view of literature, what is your encouragement as we end to literature teachers specifically? And literature teachers for us encompasses a lot of people. It's moms and dads who are talking about literature to their kids. It's teachers. It's school leaders. What are what is the takeaway from this article, Martin? That you hope someone reads it and then that's what they come away with. And and maybe for Paul and Tani, what is the reflection that most resonated with you as you think about that goal of teaching literature and the enjoyment of it to students? Well, I would just say, you know, we we talk a lot about the good, the true, and the beautiful, and this is this is the the subject of art is the beautiful in the truth, ultimately truth and goodness and beauty come to the same thing. And if you can help a student see that in a work of literature or any work of art, um, then I think you have accomplished something that will change their lives. I mean, I mean, you know, you, you think about the ki- things kids care about. What do they care about? They care about movies. They care about music. They're, they, they're all aesthetic things. This is what they care about. If you can help them see the beauty of literature and poetry and 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 music, uh, I I think you you you've done something life changing for a student. It, it's there, and <clears throat> it's not done well oftentimes, and so they never really see it. But if you can help them, you know, take a short story or a or a, a book or whatever it is, and help them see it. And I've seen it happen in in my classroom where where all of a sudden the the scales fall from their mm-hmm. eyes and they see the beauty that's in this thing. That's your object. That's what you need to be uh, working toward. I love the idea. I mean, I, I I love that in in sort of expressing it this way, a teacher's got four different things to help them think about literature mm. um, and not just focus on the one thing that appeals to them, um, but to say that there are there are multiple aspects here that we can probe in this. I have been uh, talking with a homeschooler friend um, by email about literature and about whether students uh, should be able to read whatever they want to read. Mm. And I, um, did, I let my children, I think back in the day when they were, becoming avid readers they were reading um star wars books that like jedi apprentice or something i don't know i sold them for a lot of money on ebay that's why i remember them (laughs) because i couldn't believe how much they were worth but um i you know we together i think decided that as long as you are as martin said introducing studying good literature you really are inoculating them. And so that doesn't mean they're not going to choose to read things that aren't of the, I don't, the Star Wars books were certainly not 
on the same level as a book like Charlotte's Web. But but it's okay. You do want them to read and you have to you do have to care about what they're reading. But as long as you're doing the best that you can and having an actual hour of literature a day where you are delving deep and contemplating good books, students will come along and they will not be satisfied with with less. Now they'll be like my British murder mysteries, Martin's Sabatini and Paul's Sabatini books. Do we want to put those alongside Dante? No. But there's still it's still they're still not bad books, right? I don't think I just want to be careful that we're not appearing to say that you should only read classic literature that I need to read James Joyce all the time. No, I I just think that our <clears throat> particularly the current generation is just surrounded by nihilism on every side. And one of the functions of beauty is an inoculation against nihilism. If they can see that, you can't be a nihilist. If they can see beauty, right. they can't be. And they can find it in something high literature, that's what I would call Dante, or lower forms of literature, which still are getting at truths and still are beautiful. Yeah, I think you have to have both. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. you don't have to have both. You could read really good, for me, it would be British lit all the time. <laughs> but it is, you know, sometimes you just need an entertaining read. Yeah. And that's okay. Well, I think this has been a great discussion of Martin's article. And so I think everyone should go out and get a copy of The Classical Teacher and read In Defense of Literacy by Wendell Berry. And then afterwards, consider writing, <laughs> reading Martin's article as well. well going, from, going, going up. Uh, something like that. <laughs> we'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Classical Etc. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you liked this episode, consider leaving us a positive review and sharing it with a friend. A huge thank you to the Memoria Press Podcast Network for hosting our show. Be sure to check out all the great podcasts there. As always, I'm Shane Saxon. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Memoria Press Podcast Network, providing a classical Christian perspective on the world of education. To learn more about Memoria Press, visit us at memoriapress.com. To connect with us, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.